0: I'm Zasha Rosen. This is Or It Didn't Happen. Normally I host the FBI podcast, Know What You Think. And we do have a new season of Know What You Think coming up early next year. But this show, Or It Didn't Happen, is going to be bringing you fiction from around Sydney. The fiction we're looking at this season is a small subset of Sydney fiction. It's the fiction that people read live at fiction nights around town. There's a pretty strong scene in Sydney of... Narrative non-fiction story nights, uh, great live poetry scene, or actually, like, at least three or four great live poetry scenes, depending how you look at it. But relative to those communities, fiction read out live on stage by its authors is relatively a small thing here. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be hearing about three of the Sydney Fiction Nights. There are more than these three, but these are the three that we've managed to record and get on air. Two of them are Inner City Nights... But today we're not hearing from either of those. Today we're hearing stories from a fiction night staged in Parramatta called Studio Stories. Studio Stories is held on a Thursday night every month or two in Parramatta. It's held at the Parramatta Artist Studios and it's run by Felicity Castagna. Felicity Castagna is a writer. She's the author of books like The Incredible Here and Now and No More Boats. And she's in the studio with me right now. Hi, Felicity. Hi. Hi. Um, just to establish some basic facts here, you guys are in a space called the Parameter Artist Studios, hence the name of the night studio stories. Yep. You guys take it over once every month or two and bring in lots of strangers into the common space to tell stories on stage.
1: Yeah. I give every studio stories a loose theme and I tell them to read whatever they want to read. I don't even read it beforehand.
0: And one of the stories we'll hear is actually written specifically to the theme, which is glamour.
1: Yeah. We get a combination of very established and emerging writers. So we often get established writers who come in and read from something that has already been published. And then we often get emerging writers who are reading something that they've just written. That's how you develop better networks and make sure that those emerging writers have people that they know and are connected to and you can help support their careers, even if that's, again, just one sentence when you're being interviewed on the radio um, in which you recommend their book.
0: <laughs> what are the literary circles like that Western Sydney writers don't have access to?
1: That's another thing that's, I think, quite different about the Western Sydney writing scene than in the city. People are a lot less exposed to the kind of social network of the literary scene which is where a lot of people who live in the inner West pick up opportunities, right? Like they go to parties and stuff and they meet the editor of such and such or somebody who's working on programming on a literary festival and opportunities just kind of naturally happen, whereas that doesn't happen in Western Sydney. So you need these spaces where you can bring people who are interested in writing and who are working in the writing fields and who are supporting Writing in Western Sydney, in the arts in Western Sydney, you kind of need to get everybody in the same place to hang out. And the kind of hanging out bit is just as important, I think, as the actual stories that are told. I even think that there's something to be said for even just the advertisements around it, like social media places, for example, and in the local newspapers. People are just seeing that there are writers in that community I think one of the things that's important in Western Sydney is just that people are able to imagine that they could be writers and that their stories are important and also that, you know, that there's other writers in their community. I think that that's really powerful. Even just to be able to put a Facebook invite to something where the bio says, here's three guys from Macquarie Fields who are telling their stories, I think that's incredibly powerful. Some of the first authors that were being published in Western Sydney were people like me and... Michael Muhammad Ahmed and Lachlan Brown and Luke Carmen, And for a long time, we were all just asked to talk about Western Sydney kind of relentlessly. And we did that because it was really exciting to be able to talk about Western Sydney relentlessly because, you know, nobody had cared before. I actually think that all of those kind of authors now who've come up through the Western Sydney literature scene, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I do think that there is a sense now that we would like to be acknowledged for our other attributes other than our Western Sydney-ness. So a lot of people like Fiona Wright, for example, who basically through her collection Small Acts of Disappearance basically changed what we think of as the essay or as the illness narrative. She has really pioneered that form. To just ask her about growing up in Menai is pretty demeaning, I think. And again, for a poet like Lachlan Brown, who grew up in Macquarie Fields, his poetry is incredibly innovative in form. It's beautifully narratively structured. He tells amazing stories through his poetry that would resonate with people from any place. So to just talk about him as a poet from Macquarie Fields also seems to limit our perception of him and our understanding of how powerful the images he provokes in his poetry are. One of the best parts of studio stories, I I think, is the Q&A, which is a bit different than other reading nights. We make sure we have about 10 minutes towards the end where the audience can ask everyone who read questions. I remember Tamar Shonohokian in an earlier studio Stories, not the one that's actually on this recording that we're going to look at today, but in an earlier studio story, she was talking about her first book, The Diet Starts on Monday, and there was, I guess, this question that was kind of pussyfooting around how do you write about women who are overweight? And Tamar just looked straight at them and went, I'm fat, I'm a fat woman, and and I wanted to write about that. That's who I am. I'm proud of that. We should be telling these kinds of stories in books. We should be talking about what it means to be overweight and walk
0: in the world as an overweight woman. Tamar is the first author that we're going to be hearing from. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little about her and, and what story we're going to hear and why you chose her?
1: I chose Tamar because I've watched Tamar's writing develop over about eight, nine years now. She writes these female characters from the Armenian community in southwestern Sydney who are funny, who are able to talk in those kind of confronting ways about their pain and their suffering without... Demanding to be felt sorry for. They don't want to be felt sorry for at all. They just want to be acknowledged as the strong women that they are, who are able to overcome a lot of the things that happen to them with wit and with humor. She's really well liked by a lot of young women in the community, I think, because her stories really speak to, I think, a lot of young women of, of all different cultural backgrounds. We are about to hear an excerpt from her second novel for young adults, which she's working on now. The novel explores the life of a Armenian girl in the Fairfield area who is in year 12 and is living a fantastic life and all of a sudden runs into some quite severe mental health issues which... I guess, change everything she knows about herself and those around her.
0: And there's just a little bit of audio noise at the beginning of Tamar's story. It has a gentle content warning.
2: Inshpeses, how are you? I sung out. Gasia turned her head sideways, her eyes as round and dark as a blue moon. When she spotted me standing there, her eyelids dropped and she smiled as sweetly as a Disney princess. Love him, tuninspeses. Hungry. She reached inside her locker and grabbed her books and gold-plated lunchbox, which reminded me of my mother's woggy jewellery box. (laughs) It was carved with bird and flower patterns. We turned the corner and walked down the white lino-covered hallway with grey concrete walls until we got to a double-glass door which led to the courtyard. Girls were scattered everywhere, sitting on the asphalt ground. Some were sitting on the metallic benches underneath the eucalyptus trees. The buzz of conversation was so loud it was like we were two fans at an Ed Sheeran concert trying to make our way to our seats before the show began. Your bros a jerk, Layla yelled from under the trees. Her nasally voice always made my head hurt. Hey, skank, let's take a selfie, Cindy hollered like a crazy rock star. She thought she was pink. Nairi and Javika were sitting under the metal awning of the textiles building. It had been our hangout since year seven. It was a good spot, providing the right amount of shade and sun, and it was close to the canteen and the toilets. I knew Nairi through the Armenian community. When we were younger, we saw each other occasionally at parties. When we started at Smithfield Girls High School, we were the only two Amos in our year, so we stuck to each other like the Kardashians. <laughs> in the first week of u 7, our PE teacher, Mrs Sanders, got us to create a dance routine as an icebreaker. She paired Nairi and me up with Javika, The three of us put together our Armenian dance moves, along with Javika's Indian Bollywood-style moves to Love Story by Taylor Swift. The dance was so fun that Mrs Sanders made all of you seven do it as a warm-up for the whole term. From that moment on, all our classmates called us little skits. Nairi was leaning against the brick building with her eyes closed and headphones plugged into her ears. Her corneto-shaped legs stretched out and her short skirt lifted all the way up to the top of her thighs. She had sprayed her ivory skin with coconut oil. The smell was so intoxicating I wanted to eat it for lunch. (laughs) Javika was sitting cross-legged right underneath the awning out of the sun's rays. Unlike Nairi, she was naturally brown and was not obsessed with getting a tan. She had her head down scribbling something into a school diary. Zayn Malik is the hottest guy ever. Gussie and I stood there for about five seconds before Javika looked up. Nairi's eyes were still closed and she had begun singing the word to Dua hit shaking her head from side to side, ash bob hair flicking her high cheekbones. I could be the one, be the one, be the one. She belted the lyrics like she was a contestant on The Voice. (laughs) I swung my right leg back and playfully kicked Nairi with my black sketches. Hey, Kaklan, shithead, wake up. (laughs) She flinched and her head hit the brick wall. Her skirt flew back, revealing her white undies. Ouch! Her eyes popped open. Might it! She looked down at her bare legs and quickly pulled down the skirt. "'Your mum,' I replied, poking out my tongue. (laughs) Garcia was standing there quietly, watching the three of us. Suddenly we heard screams come from the middle of the courtyard. The words bitch and slut and backstabber were blasting through the air and the voices sounded as shrill and crude as the women in the WWE. I sprinted towards the ruckus and pushed my way through the crowd to find two girls circling each other. One was Nadia, the other was Claire. They were both in my math class. Everyone was quiet, wondering what was going to happen next. Then, all at once, Nadia stomped her stumpy thighs on the Ashfield and clenched her fist tight like she was about to do the hucker. <laughs> He's mine, you gaff slut, she spat as she got up into Claire's freckly face. Not anymore, you fat bitch, Claire roared. Her white face was turning pink and she began to look like strawberry shortcake. What did you call me? Nadia lunged at Claire's head and began yanking her ginger ponytail with her Michelin hands. She was tugging so hard that Claire was cawing like a crow. Claire tried to break free by scratching at Nadia's hands with a coffin nail acrylics, but she was only scraping the surface of Nadia's bulky arms. The crowd had grown larger and now there were random G's being thrown around. Smash that meat pie, Nadia's Assyrian friend shouted. Flatten that fat kebab, Claire's Aussie friends retorted. I jumped into the catfight and got between them, trying to push them both as far back as possible. Not being around boys made the girls extra territorial and fights like this broke out all the time. Sometimes it was for major reasons like stealing one's boyfriend, and other times a girl could just be paranoid and jealous and start a rumor which leads to a brawl. Stop it, you psychos! I yelled as I tried to pull their hands apart. Nadia's grip was so tight that I couldn't make her budge, all the while I was being clawed by Claire's sharp nails. It felt like pins were poking into my flesh. In all the chaos, I could hear Nari and Javika yelling, You tell them, Arevik! This time I tightened my grip around Nadia's chubby hand and shoved it hard. Her hand flew high in the air and for a moment it looked as though she was praying. Claire lost her balance and fell to the floor. Nadia was about to pounce again, but I stood in front of her with my arms crossed. ''Where are you going?'' I asked, cocking my head to the side. Arevik, stay out of this!'' Nadia said, looking past me at Claire, who was trying to get back up. Claire stumbled to her feet. Her skirt was dusty and she had a few scratches on the back of her arms. A deep, familiar voice boomed. ''You three, come here now!'' We turned around to find Mrs Petrovic emerging from the cluster of girls. She stood there shaking her head. Her thin lips were pursed so tight, I thought her face was about to pop like a balloon. (laughs) Miss, I was trying to break it up, I swear. Yeah, miss, she was. Nairi and Javika came forward, followed by Garcia, who stood sheepishly beside them. Mrs Petrovic gave me her nod of approval. She walked away with Nadi and Claire in tow, who were both giving each other death stares. The rest of the girls dispersed. Nairi Javika, Garcia and I were left standing in the middle. The three of us just casually walked back to our spot while Garcia stood there frazzled like she had been blasted in the face with a hairdryer. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Who are we going to hear after tomorrow?
1: I think we're going to hear some work from Jared Chad Modernell. He is an emerging writer from the Macquarie Fields area. He's an undergraduate student at Western Sydney University at the moment and he recently won a Westwards Varuna Fellowship. He's 19 years old but intensely talented, has an incredibly unique and original voice. It's something like David Foster Wallace meets Chuck Polanitz meets Filipino suburban guy from Macquarie Fields, (laughs) if you can imagine what that's
0: like. Jared is writing to the theme of the night, which was glamour, and his story also comes with a content warning.
3: When you say glamour, I didn't really know what to write about, so I guess it's pretty confusing, yeah. All right, um, sometimes my shallowness is so thorough, one can mistake it for deepness. (laughs) That's something I stole from a Tumblr post, but I don't really know where. Um, My experiences with glamour can be brought back to the first time I knew a girl, with my ring finger at the back of a migrating Filipino bus. I was in love. We were 14. She had a crooked tooth, which she was really insecure about. And by the time I left, she got braces. But when I messaged her, she told me they weren't real, because she couldn't afford them. She had drowned herself in baby powder to look whiter. She was like a geisha with white all over her fingers. Like she was about to lift something heavy. I tried to do it for a time, but it dried my skin up too much. And I just stopped. And <laughs> she also liked my lips. She liked, like, she's like, oh, I really like your lips when they're like big and puffy. So I like picked up the habit of like licking with my lips a lot. And now they're always like cracked and shit. So <laughs> um, when I got back to Australia, cause I was on, I was on a holiday there for a month, we promised each other that we'll keep in contact, that we'll correspond, but uh, kind of died out. And I kind of knew, like, deep down, I wasn't really her type because uh, she liked older guys and whiter guys. Uh, <laughs> like, a cultural context for glamour for me was in the Philippines where everyone's obsessed with being whiter. When you're whiter, you, you stay away from the sun because that's what they really want to do. They, they want to, like, lose their tan. I guess they do that in India, I think, as well. Um... But Chuck Palahniuk says in Rant, in his book, life's greatest comfort is being able to look over your shoulder and see people worse off waiting in line behind you. (laughs) I think that perfectly sums up what glamour is to me. A concession to show that my insecurities aren't as insecure as other people's insecurities. That could probably be it. Because at the end, everyone needs someone to feel superior to. Even when you see those tailing behind you, stories of the children in third world countries, the homeless camper outside the Parramatta station the guy bolting at 16 next to you on the train. The word pity comes to mind because the word pity is pretty much taking a distant stance of superiority. I think this too is glamour. Glamour is me hiding behind my youth. Glamour is me dowsing myself in cologne. Glamour is me not shaving this and wearing this so that I can retain a rugged rider look. Glamour is... Growing my hair out crazy so I could hide my hairline. Glamour is rehearsing my smiles and this in the mirror. Glamour is learning guitar only so I could serenade to someone. Glamour is the fake laugh you use when someone says something unfunny. Glamour is deleting an Instagram post if it doesn't get 100 likes in a week. Glamour is trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Glamour is stealing videos, YouTube videos on the toilet seat. And taking them as your own, so you can be the smartest person in the room. Glamour is walking around with a big book around you. Glamour is pretending to enjoy movies, albums and books, so I seem cultured. Glamour is being openly insecure and vulnerable, so you think people can relate to you. Glamour is being aware that you're aware. I think all this stuff is what glamour is to me. And I also think glamour is reciting the origins of the word glamour, so you won't know that I wrote this one day. (laughs) So glamour originated from the Scottish word meaning enchanting or magical and from the word grammar in English then grammatica from Latin which which meant scholarship and learning and it got churned out to mean attractive and exciting qualities to appeal sexually according to Google. Um, So what I like figured out when I was eating chicken nuggets at Hungry Jack's at Parramatta Westfields is that for me I don't think glamour is like walking down a runway stage, I think it's like you standing in an orderly canteen line, and as much as you hate waiting to be served, you're happy that you're not the guy behind you. So, thank you.
1: So the next person we're going to hear from is Ben Muir, who's also a student at Western Sydney University. He's doing postgraduate. He has been a music blogger for quite a long time and plays in several bands across Western Sydney that actually tour across New South Wales frequently. And he is also from Macquarie Fields. He writes both poetry and prose and I think that what he's really interested in is suburbia and specifically the suburbia that he comes from around Macquarie Fields. In this prose poem, he's talking about a party that he attended.
0: And he reads really seriously, but at the same time as though he's making fun of himself reading very seriously.
1: I would say that all three of the readers that you've heard here today have what I would call a distinctly Western Sydney voice, which is that their pieces are assertive and dark in many ways, but underlying that is an
0: incredible sense of humour. Let's have a listen. And this piece comes with a content warning.
4: Second poem, which is called Most Glamorous Night of My Life, a prose poem. The location of the party, if you could call it that, is somewhere in the CBD, and the penthouse's framed glass enclosure gives way to the lay of the land, streetlights combusting, twinkling like those behind sleepless eyes when wearily rubbed touched touch too forcefully. From the balcony, the globe's centre point tower beckons, a gilded beacon, a glittering Promethean torch whose lights spell the siren song of all-night gambling, yoga classes, a questionable but nevertheless steeply priced buffet that rotates, and of course, circumvention of the otherwise totalitarian lockout laws. Because God forbid one imbibe after midnight without also taking out a second mortgage on the old one-armed bandit. Am I right, boys? Or at least that's how you'd imagine the council meeting was. It was a coke dealer's 21st, but you wouldn't know it. His mother is in the doorway handing out packaged sweets and cupcakes. She's got to have at least an inkling, but if she does, it isn't letting on, and maybe that's how she gets through the bitter irony of the situation, which strikes perfect monochromatic contrast with the sugar that melts tastelessly on the parched tongues of the menagerie of guests. Three varieties of music blend to make a cacophony across the three levels of the penthouse, which is packed like Parramatta Road at peak hour despite the explicit two-guest limit. It was Raymond Fetterman who said history and the subject are two sides of an immense farce, and the subject knows that there's no truth, but there are truths in the plural, and this is one of them. They sit at a crowded table of friends and acquaintances, but feel strangely alone despite the implicit anxiety of a packed room and a crowded hotel suite, ears thrumming from the psychedelic trance that dreadlocked plumber plays from across the room that fights valiantly to be heard over the deep house on the floor below and the top 40 rotations below that, but prevails through the virtue of bass. Conversation spurs on. They deflect engagement with a gently glowing screen, as much a shield as a looking glass or portal, and interject with semi-appropriate responses to the general flow of discourse, usually a point or two behind. They make a joke in poor taste about the Blue Mountains incest cult, and nobody at the table believes them that the cult was not an urban myth. So, peering into their social crotch for a gotcha, they Google the court transcripts, and suddenly, like the most visceral car crash, where even at a crawling pace the wheels struggle to grip the road for the innards strewn across it, now more than a pace, denying vital, life-giving traction. Not unlike how they got there, the subject cannot look away. A watering eyes fixate on the document that crawls like unending closing credits where the production crew with shades and vapours that knitted together form the fabric of night terrors, primal fears, and phobias. They're repulsed, but they owe it to the victims to read on, as if their discomfort might disperse a tiny fraction of the pain. The transcript finishes... The table is given up on pursuing their conversation as they gawk at the city lights mutely through the pained glass with the thousand-yard stare of a war zone youth, the twinkling magnificence wasted on them. The transcripts were not a short document. Hours have passed. For once they can skip on the gotcha as they have no desire to subject their friends and acquaintances to the images that burn their ego and scar like a retinal afterimage without the relief of gradual dissipation. They must, however, hold that thought. Hotel security, absent for most of the night despite the curious gradual influx of a hundred or so guests into the two-guest maximum room, decide at last to do their job as one of the neighbouring penthouse occupants has filed a noise complaint. The host stands apologetically beside his mother as he shepherds his guests out reluctantly and an exodus spills onto the Sydney streets. One woman falls to her knees by the roadside but not quite timely enough as stomach acid soils her glittering cocktail dress. The subject's group decides to find another venue for merriment. They walk the length between the hotel and the harbour and keep looking over their shoulder, nervously expecting a king hit, maybe even wishing for one tonight, anything to distract them from their fixation. Feeling the second sets of knuckles they developed from breaks on their fifth metacarpal, they think, I'd like to see someone try tonight. As they reach the harbour front, they imagine under the water a swirling maelstrom of sharks, refuse, ineffective nets and bodies never to be dragged for as the rest of the group walks on. They pause to contemplate it and consider diving in so that the body might match their tattered mind. While the bouncer lets them in, they're almost immediately kicked out, and the subject considers making a Sydney Nightlight statistic of a mouthy Beardo who takes the moral high ground as their friend abuses the bouncer before they leave to wait nearly two hours for the first morning train. And they think that while they're a devil, perhaps one deserving of sympathy, they're not a man of wealth and taste, and the commiseration prize is that one day, maybe, the most glamorous night of their life gone to seed might make a passable piece of writing.
0: Studio Stories is an ongoing thing?
1: Yeah, we run about every six weeks uh, on a Thursday night at the Parramatta Artist Studios, which is about a five-minute walk from the train station for anyone coming from other places. It's at 68 Macquarie Street.
0: If people are listening and they'd like to come along, how do they keep track of you? How do they find out when the next night is?
1: The best way to keep track of what's going is to like our Facebook page, which is Studio Stories Parramatta. Is
0: it the sort of night where people can read a story?
1: Absolutely. We have an open mic. It depends on how many people want to read. Um, Sometimes we can't get through everybody that wants to read, but we always have about three or four open mics where we allow anybody to read anything for a couple of minutes. And sometimes people even just get up and sing something.
0: And the best way to do that is to just come along on the night, put your name in the open mic jar, and odds are you'll get up on stage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the whole night is free. We also provide free drinks and free food for everybody. Again, because we see it, the social aspect of it as being really important. Come and meet new people. We don't take RSVPs. Just come along and have a great time.
0: Felicity, thank you for coming in and telling us all about Studio Stories.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: There are links to Studio Stories and all of today's authors at com slash or it didn't happen, or one word. No Punctuation. You can also listen to this show there and find our podcast feed. Show art is by Annie Hamilton, or It Didn't Happen is produced by me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Thanks for listening. Next week, Little Fictions.